So open up your word to think through what it has to say together today. Pray that um, for the next little while, Lord, that you would be opening up our hearts to your word, teaching us from it and growing us in our knowledge and our understanding of you, who you are and what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. Amen. Um, <clears throat> so as I said before, this last kind of month uh, of April, we've been going through a series thinking about Easter, thinking about uh, what Easter means, why do we celebrate Easter, what does it mean that Jesus came to this earth, that he lived amongst us. Um, we're focused on what Jesus achieved by coming, by dying on the cross, by rising to life again. And today we get to think through that final topic on this series on Easter about what Jesus really accomplished through his death, uh, through his resurrection. We're thinking through the fact that Jesus deals with something that can often be a topic uh, I think we feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about. Satan, the devil. Talking through this morning how Jesus has defeated the devil once and for all and through doing so, dealing with one of the biggest fears and unknowns uh, that exist for us today. As we're getting started, I want to ask the question, uh, what is the difference between being wary of something and fearing something? I think there's a, there's a fairly obvious uh, answer to the question of, you know, what, what's the difference between being wary and being fearful? But where do you draw the line on being wary of something and that wariness actually turning into full-blown fear? I think when we're confronted with things that, that we do fear, they tend to occupy pretty much 100% of our attention when we're afraid Almost everything else around us becomes excluded. So at the time, I went rock climbing with my youth group leaders when I was a teenager. Now, I've always had a little bit of a thing with heights. I don't really like heights. Um, I'm better now than I used to be, I'll say that. Um, but I used to be fairly terrified of them. And one time, the leaders of my Bible study at youth group had this awesome idea that we'd go rock climbing. We drove up to Murray Alta, uh, and we're going to climb up some of the, the cliff faces there. Now, it was a great day until we got to the rock climbing part of things and rocked up at the face of this cliff. Now, I started the climb okay, and when I say I started the climb okay, I mean that while my feet were on the ground, like, we were sweet, it was all good. But as soon as my feet left the ground, something happened. I became really conscious of kind of behind me the drop that fell down and down and down, and I started to kind of think and panic, you know, maybe... If I got too high, if I let go, something bad would happen. For some reason, my harness didn't work. Something went wrong. Maybe there was someone, you know, as a bit of a maniac up the top waiting to cut the rope when I got like halfway. Maybe there was a killer koala that was going to jump on my face and I'd just, I'd just fall down and that would be the end of it. So have this picture in your head. I'm stuck on the cliff face and my youth group leaders beneath me are going, Jack, what are you doing? My friends are going, Jack, what are you doing? Why are you just kind of clinging there? You zoom out a little bit and there's me, honestly, probably like a metre off the ground, clinging on for dear life and saying, I need to come down now, I'm terrified. I was so terrified, so full of fear, so all focused on this climb and it going horribly wrong. I was okay if a little bit embarrassed. Um, and I think the excuse that I actually gave my youth group leaders and friends was that there'd, there'd been a possum in the roof at home the night before and that I hadn't got much sleep, so I was a bit tired, so, you know need to come down. Uh, yeah. So if I ever tell you about a possum, don't believe what I'm saying. Um, yeah, they didn't, they saw through it. One of them still brings it up with me like, every time I see them. It's very embarrassing. <laughs> anyway, when it, 
when it comes to Satan, I wonder if sometimes that response that I had when I was clinging to the face of the cliff uh, is the same kind of response that we have to the devil. Now, I was completely safe from falling, even if I did let go of the wall, and yet dwelling on the fact that I was completely doomed if I didn't have the harness. When you take a minute to look at the historic response uh, of the devil to humanity, I think we can see that often the response to the devil is fear of the unknown, fear of the devil being active in the world today, fear that he may be waiting just around the corner. Now, images like this one don't really help this way of thinking. I don't think, know if you can see that that well up there, but there's uh, the devil and, and demons kind of, you know, freaking out this poor man. But I'll click off that screen now. Great. But that's kind of the way the world has viewed Satan in the past. Lots of people have painted images just like that one as a horrifying figure that's just kind of waiting to strike. It's the leader of this army of evil in an eternal battle against good, trying to overthrow God from his throne and drag humanity down as he does so. This is so often how Satan is portrayed by media and movies, in books, portrayed as someone with great power. Think about movies like Lord of the Rings, like Harry Potter, like Star Wars. It's always good versus evil, isn't it, in these movies? Always a battle that will determine who's going to reign and be victorious. I think sometimes this is how God and the devil are viewed. Good and evil battling it out for supremacy into eternity. But the Bible doesn't actually paint that picture. It paints a very different picture that we get to look at this morning. See, when Jesus came and died on the cross, he dealt with the devil once and for all in a way that is actually all-encompassing, in a way that is final. And we see that there is never any doubt to this actually happening. So point one, uh, the devil in defeat. In the Garden of Eden, in the very beginning of the Bible, the very first book, the third chapter, after God has created this beautiful, good creation, let's see how the devil interacted with this good creation that God created. Let's see how it doesn't actually point to any kind of victory for Satan, but points us to his defeat. See, when we see the devil's interaction with God's creation, we see that he seeks to turn it away from God. Uh, He seeks to turn Adam and Eve away from following God and obeying him. Um, And Adam and Eve actually do do this. They do turn away from God. But when God and the serpent come face to face, the relationship is blindingly obvious. God was always the authority. The devil sits under God's authority, sits under God's judgment, not outside of it. In verse 14, he says, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first interaction we see between God and the devil in the Bible. There's no big fight, no clash. There's no sense of victory for the devil. God doesn't go into the conversation going, I know, what do I do? This is a horrible thing. I don't know what's going to happen. The first interaction between God and the devil that we see is for God to say, because you have acted this way, you now face the consequences. You've achieved nothing except your own doom. 
And then he speaks of how this defeat is going to be made final, not as something that he hopes is going to happen, but as something that there is no doubt about. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's no mighty battle, no indecisiveness. Just the fact that is passed from God to the devil, he was defeated from the word go. But it is in this rebellion how we do see how the devil operates. So he didn't appear to Eve by jumping out from behind a tree and, uh, and, and you know, forcing a piece of fruit down her throat. See, the devil doesn't force people to sin. He doesn't force people to turn away from God. This is what he says to Eve. He asks a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent doesn't force Eve or force Adam to do anything. He lies to Eve deceives her and leads her into doing what God had commanded her not to, taking of the fruit and eating it, but not forcing her to. And we all know what happens next. Eve takes that fruit, eats it, so does Adam, and so doing they fall subject to the penalty of sin, which is death. And Adam and Eve can't blame anyone for doing this except for themselves. I think that's something that we need to recognize about sin as well that we are held responsible to our actions. And being held responsible for their actions, Adam and Eve, they need to face the consequences, the consequence of facing God's judgment. They're no longer in that right relationship with God, but that relationship was broken. And yet God made that promise when he cursed the serpent for leading them this way, didn't he? That one of the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. If you jump forward in history uh, a fair bit, you get to the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That means God with us. Jump forward again to the birth of Jesus in the book of Matthew, where Joseph is told that his wife is going to give birth to a baby. That Joseph is to give him the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And again, we read in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23, this is to fulfill the prophecy from Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The one who would defeat Satan once and for all, the one who would save people from their sin. You see, right from the beginning, God has said that this would come to pass, that God would defeat Satan, that the head of the serpent would be crushed. See, God was always in control, even when it looked like the devil had had a victory. That's point two on your outline, the king in control. See, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is born, he grows up to a man, he's baptised, and in chapter four of Matthew, After this happens, Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days. And the devil meets Jesus there in the garden. 
when Jesus is hungry. And this is what the devil says. From verse 3 it says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He approaches Jesus from the outset, knowing that he is the Son of God. And he tries to tempt Jesus just as he tempted Adam and Eve. And yet Jesus doesn't give in to that temptation, but brings to light what his ministry is about, why he will not listen to the devil tempting him. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus holds fast to the word of God, isn't led astray or turned from the purpose for his coming, the purpose that Joseph hears in Matthew chapter 1, and the purpose for which we read when we come to Hebrews chapter 2. In verse 9, that Jesus might suffer death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This kind of makes you stop, you go, hang on, if Jesus died, how is that victory over the devil? Isn't that what the devil wanted? Well, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, puts it like this. Not in that one, but in front of you. Chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. On Easter Sunday, we heard about how Jesus defeated death itself, how he didn't stay dead, but raised to life again. Victorious. And well, we read here that by dying, he defeated Satan, crushed the head of the serpent, broke the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And that by his doing so, freed us from the fear of the slavery to death. Jesus, who wasn't actually guilty of sin, could not be held by death because death didn't have a right to him, like it did to Adam and Eve, like it did to us. And Jesus, by his sacrifice on the cross, made atonement for the sins of his people, paid the price that needed to be paid for the sins of his people, and shattered the power of the devil in a way that is all-encompassing in a way that leaves no doubt as to who the victor is. The devil is defeated. And Hebrews 2 tells us that this being the case, or those who choose to follow God, are called his children, a part of his family, and go to glory with him. Today, wherever you're at in terms of your relationship with God, know that Jesus is the one who does deal with death, the one who does deal with the devil, the one who makes the way to God possible, the only one who makes the way to God possible. Here uh, in verse 10 in Hebrews 2, he's called the pioneer of salvation, the one who leads the way to salvation, the one who leads the way to God. And there is a choice that everyone has to make. Will you follow God who is victorious and take up what he offers, which is life and relationship with him, or... On the other side of the coin, follow the ways of the devil who has been defeated. It feels a little bit uncomfortable, if I'm honest, phrasing it that way. But that's the reality of the decision that we need to make. But as people who follow God, what does that look like, considering the defeat of Satan? 
It's point three on your outlines to people who follow. I hope by now it's obvious for those who trust in Jesus, who are called part of God's family, that we don't need to fear the devil or death, as we heard on Easter Sunday. We have life in Jesus, the one who's broken the devil's power over death and his hold on the world. And yet it would still be foolish of us to think that we can ignore the fact that the devil exists and is actually still active today and to not be wary of him. Think back to the young me hanging from that cliff face. Imagine if I recognised that I had that harness on, that I was completely safe from falling and chose to keep climbing. But then for some reason I just decided to leave the harness just hanging on the cliff and continued climbing up without it. How foolish would that be? When we refuse to be wary of temptation in our lives and of the active work of the devil in the world, we're doing just that. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen a snake's head crushed, um, but the body kind of refuses to believe it for a little while, kind of thrashes around a bit and can still cause harm, at least for a little while. Well, the devil, while in defeat, is still dangerous today. We need to acknowledge that, that we should be wary of him. See, just as the devil sought to deceive and tempt Adam and Eve into sinning, he does the same thing today. I think back to the image I showed at the start. Uh, it was a bit freaky to look at. Well, the devil doesn't approach people like that. doesn't approach by jumping out of a dark alley and grabbing you and pulling you into that dark alley. But he approaches the way he approached Eve, the way he tried to approach Jesus, to entice people away from God. All he did for Eve was to ask a simple question at the start and to twist God's word. Sin, when we think about it, it's a completely repulsive thing and it, it can still come to us disguised as something very desirable, something that we really want to do. But think back to how Jesus responded to temptation and to the lies that the devil tried to sow. Jesus responded by using scripture. There was no super powerful, supernatural, super spiritual inbuilt weapon that Jesus kind of pulls out. He listens to, follows God's word, no other word, not another human's word, not the word that the devil utters. For us today, it's the same. There's no supernatural power that we need. God is who we need. God is who we have and who calls us to follow him by his word. So immerse yourself in that word, knowing that his word is powerful and leads you to him. Now, Jesus leads the way on being the one to follow in resisting temptation. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, at the end in verse 18, tells us that he knows exactly what it feels like to be tempted the way that we may be tempted to sin. Verse 18 says, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who were being tempted. Jesus can help us in our temptation. That's the other thing that he reminds us to do is to ask for help. You know, the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God can and does do this. When we feel temptation to turn from God, to turn into sin, we can ask him for help to resist. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, if I can get at least one Bible verse right on this PowerPoint. 
It says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. In our weakness, God helps us. And yet see in that verse, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you never sin. We do fall to temptation, we do sin, we do turn from God. But acknowledge that Jesus has already dealt with that sin in our lives. He dealt with it on the cross. And he shattered the devil's power over death, over the world. We have forgiveness in Jesus. So when you do fall into temptation, don't dwell on the guilt of doing that. But bring it to God, turning away from that sin, repenting, knowing that Jesus has paid the price on the cross. And knowing that you can call yourself part of God's family, loved by God. If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, um, I hope you've heard today that God, God loves you. That he wants you to know him and be part of his family. And that he's done everything possible um, to make it so that that can be the case. The devil is very real. We could never say that the God of the Bible exists, but that the devil doesn't. But while the devil is real, is active in the world today, we don't need to fear him. But we do need to be wary of the way that he does try to turn us from God. So cling to God, being reminded that he is victorious. Uh, Paul, uh, in a book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians, uh, says this. says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can be confident in our Saviour, Jesus, through whom we too can be called God's children, having no need to fear the devil, need to fear death, because he has triumphed over both of them already. The devil has been defeated. Put your trust in the one who has already been victorious. Know that there is no chance of us actually ever being separated from that love that God has for us. The devil no longer holds that power. The question I asked at the start though, what is the difference between being wary and fearful? Well, if we fear the devil, we're failing to understand that God has defeated him once and for all and that he no longer holds power over death. Yet to be wary of the devil is to know that while he has been defeated, he is still active in the world and loves trying to turn people away from God as he awaits the inevitable. We acknowledge our need for God to guide us and help us so that we don't fall into that temptation to turn from him. And we can know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is victorious. And as Paul states in Romans chapter 8, verse 37 to 39, he reminds us this. In all things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's fantastic. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible love that you have for us. That even though we turned away from you, you made it possible for us to come back to you through Jesus dying on the cross. By doing so, he broke the power of the devil over death and was victorious. Thank you that we can call ourselves your children, knowing that you love us, knowing that you care for us and guide us by your word. Amen.